Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how the game of baseball is being changed by a book that barely even mentions the sport. I'm so happy that you agreed to do this episode. We got the idea when I read a New York Times article called This Book is Not About Baseball, But Baseball Teams Swear by It by Joe Lemire. The subtitle of the article was A Psychology Book by a Nobel Prize winning author has become a must read in front offices. It's changing the sport. And I was like, oh my God, you know, it's a book dream. It's a book that's changing a sport. Don't you think this would make a great book dreams episode? And you said yes, but you withheld a key piece of information. (laughs) Yes. Well, just to be clear, it's not that I hate sports. It's just that my mind kind of turns off every time I think about them. (laughs) So (laughs) I respect sports and I get that other people love sports. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but you have no idea how many New York Rangers games I've been to with Nick. And, you know, as long as the snacks held out, I had a great time. (laughs) But I also recognized we've never talked about sports on Book Dreams. And this was a chance to combine books and sports. So I'm totally game. Right. Did right. you get well, that? Wait, wait. Did, oh, did <laughs> See, I'm, get it I'm now. all in, Julie. I'm all in. <laughs> I get it now. I get it now. Well, I love baseball. To me, baseball translates to stories. I think of it as like, oh, once you know enough about the players, you know, like, oh, this player really likes to be matched with a particular pitcher, but that pitcher isn't behind the mound today. It's a different pitcher. Like what's going to happen? It's all Mm. about a story. Mm -hmm. So I feel like stick with me, kid. We'll get you into baseball. But in the meantime, I think we need to explain a little bit about the book that the article is referencing. That book is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist famous for his work on the psychology of judgment and decision-making. So thinking fast and slow is all about how our judgments are deeply, profoundly affected by forces that we don't always, or even maybe even usually see. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002, even though he's not an economist, for this work that he's done showing empirically that people are not the rational actors that we were assumed to be in traditional economic models. I always hated those models. I took a little economics in college and I could not understand it in part because I was like, people are crazy. Why are all of your economic models based on this notion that we are not crazy? So I felt very validated once I started learning about behavioral economics. Anyway, the article is a sweet spot for me because I like baseball, I like behavioral economics, and I was very excited to get to talk to the journalist who wrote it. You know, this is another thing we've never talked about that we share, but I also really resisted the idea that my behavior could be predicted by these economic models. And so I would do things like 
if there were 12 hot dog stands on the beach, I would think to myself, well, that's the place I don't want to go for hot dogs. <laughs> really stupid things like that. Anyway, back to Joe. Joe's a senior writer at Sport Techie, covering sports technology news. He's also a contributor to the New York Times and MLB Network, and he worked at Sports Illustrated for seven years, primarily covering baseball. His work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. So just a little bit more about thinking fast and slow before we get started. In the book, Daniel Kahneman talks about two systems that drive the way we think. So system one is fast, intuitive, and emotional. It's what we would commonly think about as um, thinking from your gut. And system two is slower and more deliberative and more logical. So we might say, you know, thinking from the brain. Anyway, the point that the book establishes is that a lot of the time we assume our decisions are being driven by system two, logic and reason, and we don't see or understand the illogical biases that are actually in play. Right. And since we're talking about baseball and flawed decision-making, I just think we need to take one second to talk about Moneyball. It's a hugely popular book written by Michael Lewis, and it was turned into a Brad Pitt movie about how baseball insiders were always making all of these bad decisions because they were relying on traditions and instincts instead of data and statistics. The Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, adds another layer to this picture It explains why human beings, in this case, baseball executives, failed to do the strictly rational thing and rely on the statistics that they had. Instead of looking to the statistics, they made all sorts of misjudgments based on the kinds of biases that Kahneman has researched and explained separately. We started our conversation with Joe by asking him to give us a sense of just how influential thinking fast and slow has become to baseball. Here's what he said. I think at this point, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in baseball who isn't at least aware of the book. I found a pretty remarkable success just, you know, cold calling saying, hey, what would you consider to be an influential book in baseball? This may not have been the very first name that everybody gave, but certainly it was for a good majority of them. And it was certainly a book that many key members of baseball had read. Do you think the book is more influential in baseball than in other sports? And if so, why? Uh, Hard to say without having done research in other areas. I think the book has the potential to be wildly influential in all walks of life because it very much is just about each person's decision-making and the the cognitive biases that might interfere with good judgments. I do think it probably is more common in baseball than some professions for a few reasons. One, so many of these executives change teams, and so there's a lot of going from one company to another more so than others and things get brought with them. I think it's just a very much a copycat closed industry. There are only 30 teams. And if someone's being successful doing something one way, word will get out and and others will follow suit. And baseball is a series of discrete events that you can very easily quantify what happens, you know, apply credit or blame to certain players for certain actions. It ends up providing this great data set that can be analyzed. And that's why you've seen this advanced statistical analysis take over in the game. And it's, uh, you know, sort of a, a parallel thought to think, hey, now that I have all this great statistical information, let me make sure I'm using it and applying it right. And one of the other executives in the book, Josh Burns, is with the Los Angeles Dodgers now. Even He spoke to me at length about how the Dodgers go to some extremes to make sure that the, the information they consider is pure and it doesn't interfere. It doesn't impede other people's thought process. They want everyone to come up with their own judgments, and then you collate them at the end. You don't want 
one person to start speaking and then everybody else thinks, oh, hey, if the boss likes this player we're scouting, maybe I should temper my judgment a little bit, you know, in that favor as well. What are the extremes that they go to? Just making sure that everything is very compartmentalized. So scouting players is certainly an area where bias is, is very prevalent and you get used to seeing, you know, certain body types being successful and that can really persuade a scout's opinion. And so what he described was making sure that there's extensive notations about how each scout gleaned their information, like when and where, what the weather was when they watched them play, how much of it was subjective, and then how much of it was on-field performance and, and trying to come up with scales to weigh them accordingly. And then making sure that, as I said, nothing um, gets revealed too soon in the process so that it might influence somebody else. Got it. So kind of a combination of doling out information in a strategic way, and yet also being incredibly transparent about how that information came to be. Yeah, extreme transparency overall, but not revealing that until the end. Joe totally hooked me with this particular line when he said, I think the book has the potential to be widely influential in all walks of life because it very much is just about each person's decision making and the cognitive biases that might interfere with good judgments. That awareness of cognitive bias is important in so many areas, not just baseball. We're talking about this a lot lately when we talk about bias and policing. All of us just in our daily lives, interacting with unfamiliar people or unfamiliar situations, we all bring our biases wherever we go. Yeah. I just keep thinking if we can become more aware of when we're using system one, but should be using system two, we can probably reduce a lot of injustice. I mean, I think the recognition is critical. We're kind of without hope if we don't at least recognize it, but it's so hard even when we recognize it in a totally different and far more trivial context. I'm learning about cravings, which are system one, you know, food cravings, sugar cravings, and how to try to use system two to override the cravings. And yet still I end up at the refrigerator with handfuls of chocolate chips, just handfuls. That system one thinking, it is powerful. And I think it's reinforced externally. So, you know, we say things like, go with your gut, or I just knew. And sometimes that is the best way to go, but not always. It's so complicated. And the chocolate chip example, right? That's one decision for one person. And I'm trying so hard to reset it. That kind of connects in my mind with that complicated system of notations that the Dodgers have put in place, trying to account for lots of different factors that can be muddying the decision-making of lots of different people in a system of players. Like how hard it must be to account for all of those different people and all of the different factors that can be affecting their judgment. It's just so hard. It is hard. And it's very hard on a day-to-day basis when you're making those kinds of decisions quickly to bring in your system too and have it prevail. Yeah. I love the story that Joe tells next about Sig Meidel, a guy who's played a huge role in introducing Thinking Fast and Slow to baseball executives. He was working as a biomathematician at NASA, but he had always loved baseball. So he developed this whole algorithm for judging baseball players based on statistics instead of the traditional baseball assessments. Then he left NASA. He took a job in baseball, and the very first opportunity he had to test his algorithm, he almost blew it. 
Here's Joe telling what happened. So Sigma Dell, who I mentioned earlier, is probably the, the biggest Kahneman proponent in baseball. He describes that when he left his job at NASA to take this big leap of faith and pursue his dream to work in baseball, I think it was 2005, and he happened to be in the uh, the Bay Area. So the number one ranked player, according to this model, was Jed Lowry, a second baseman for Stanford University. And he went to go see him play. And uh, as he describes to me, he was imagining a Paul Bunyan character who could hit the ball so well based on the numbers. And little did he realize that Jed Lowry is not a large man. Uh, I mean, you know, he certainly has some wiry strength to him, but he is you know, definitely small, even by second baseman standards in baseball. Uh, and Sig described having what he realizes now was a bit of a panic attack at the ballpark, saying that I just quit this great stable job that I had to pursue something that maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And then he realized that, hey, this is a, an example of representative bias, that even though there are some great examples in baseball of you know, the small skinny guy and the large fat guy, both being very successful baseball players, your mind gets drawn very loudly to the stereotypical, which is sort of that middle classic, you know, chiseled, strong guy. And Jed Lowry did not seem to be that representative character, Mm -hmm. but he calmed himself down and Jed Lowry ended up being a a late first round pick and still playing today. One of only a handful of guys from that 2005 draft class that's still active now 16 years later. So system two was definitely the way to go when it, in, in, in that situation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Has the book also affected the way that coaches strategize and call plays, or is it mainly being used for recruiting? Yeah, I think it's more prevalent in scouting. Uh, it is making its way into the coaching ranks, probably less in terms of in-game strategy, but more in terms of the interactions with players. One of the Baltimore Orioles minor league coaches that I spoke to for the story. He described how in the past when coaching, he didn't want a player to come to him for a meeting if he didn't feel like he could give that player his full undivided attention. And he always kind of felt guilty that sometimes he'd put players off for a couple of days before having that meeting until his mind was clear. But then after reading this book, he realized that you know there's a great example in it of how there was a study done that someone was asked to choose fruit salad or chocolate cake. And, you know, just up front, I think most people would, you'd have a bit more of a split. But then if you had to remember a seven digit number, and then we're presented with that question, here's an example where your system two is being occupied. And so when you're then asked to make that decision, a lot more people are going to choose the chocolate cake, the, um, the less nutritious version of it. And he realized that Naturally, that's what this coach was doing. He was making sure that he had his brain giving undivided attention to someone so that he wouldn't give a chocolate cake answer when the player really needed a fruit salad answer. Got it. I like that example. That makes it really clear. And what about, and I'm using this in quotes, kind of hot players. In other words, people who outperform their statistics and they're just killing it for a while and they're really hot. So system two would say, no, 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 don't go with this player because look at all these statistics that tell you that really what's happening is you're you're tossing the penny and it's coming up heads six times in a row, which can happen, but it won't happen in the long term. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes players really outperform what they've done historically. So how does that get figured in here? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think certainly you have to evolve with new information. And I think the idea is to constantly second guess 
yourself in a healthy way to sort of make these self-checks to make sure that your process is sound. In an instance with a, uh, a very hot or streaky player, you need to find if there's a root reason why they've reinvented themselves or if they've made a change that could be more sustainable and that this is their new normal or whether this is just indeed a, a hot streak. Something um, that you said earlier about players on streaks reminded me of the movie Bull Durham, which is one of my favorites. I guess there's a moment in Bull Durham where the Susan Sarandon's character is complaining to Kevin Costner that her star pitcher boyfriend won't sleep with her because he's on a streak and he thinks that sleeping with her will mess up the streak. And Kevin Costner basically says, like, you, you don't mess with a streak, which might have been self-interested because he too wants to sleep with Susan Sarandon. But my point is that there's a lot of magical thinking in baseball. And I wonder whether the Kahneman book is feels like it's at odds with that and, and whether there's been tension both uh, among players and fans to its use as a result. Yeah, that's uh, a, a great movie. And uh, superstition has always been a fun part of the game and part of its charm. And it would be, certainly it would be a shame if that all went away. They can kind of coexist, at least for, for certain players. And it actually reminds me, there was a story I wrote when StatCast first started studying the ball flight back in 2015. And up until that point, and I'm someone who grew up you know, playing Little League and into high school when my career stopped. I'd always been a longtime fan of the game. And one of the things I always remember hearing was the harder it comes in, the harder it goes out. Basically, if the pitcher's throwing harder, well, you're going to be able to hit the ball harder out and better chance to be a home run, something along those lines. The, the StatCast data and the ball flight data, and then speaking to physicists, turns out that that's not really true. The, the pitch's speed uh, is only a very small component in terms of the batted ball speed. So what's much more important is the timing and how you hit it in the force that the batter himself generates. And that overwhelms the amount of the pitch speed velocity. And so there's a, a catcher named Travis Darneau. He was the, the Mets at the time. He's bounced around a few other teams since then. I asked him about this phenomenon just out of my own curiosity. And he said, oh, yeah, I always say that. And I explained to him what I, I just did to you about how it wasn't really true. And he said, oh, yeah, actually, I knew that too. My, my high school coach explained that to me back in the day. He says, but I still say it anyway. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's become part of the game and it's something that you think. And, and it, at the root of it is like, no matter how fearsome that pitcher, that opponent is, I can still overcome them or like, you know, how the, you can still fell the mighty giant. That's really more the actual truth of it. Sure. And it's helpful to think, oh yeah, he, you know, the, that guy throws hard, but that just makes it easier for me to get it out of the park. And you want to believe that in a certain sense. Yeah. You know, as much as we learn about the, the true why and how of the, of the game, I think a lot of the, the magic and superstition um, will find its place alongside it. Yeah. You've written that after reading Thinking Fast and Slow, Matt Blood, the director of player development for the Orioles, collaborated with someone to develop his own scouting algorithm to mitigate against bias. Can you say a little bit more about it and, and how it it works to do that? The gist was that up until when he read the book in 2012, roughly, most of the time a scout would go and see a player and the, just sort of fairly subjectively say, oh, his ability to hit is a, a 55, his ability to hit for power might only be a 30, 
but his speed might be a 70. He's going to be a really fast player um, and so on. Um, and so what he did is he collaborated with an analyst to try to look into a player's actual performance statistics, what they did in high school or college, the competition level that they faced, and try to find a, a more objective way of coming up with grading scales for each of those numbers as well. He would write out his subjective scouting report, have the you know, more objective statistical one done, and then he could compare the two and try to find some common ground on each one. And what he also described was, you know, in baseball, we're always talking about comps, you know, comparisons. And it would say, this left-handed hitter, he reminds me of, you know, Chase Utley, who's you know, a possible Hall of Famer. Actually, the, the best example of this, there was a scout who once told me that a, a young left-handed hitter reminded him of someone like a Chase Utley or a Mark Kotze. And if you know anything about those players, I mean, Chase Utley is this possible Hall of Famer and Mark Kotze was an average to decent type player. So there's this huge gap between the two of them. I think the scout's point was that in, in maybe in high school or college, whenever he was evaluating those players, they appeared to be much more similar than they are now. But once you start comparing a young player to that you know, established pro, they end up taking on a lot more of those same characteristics. In your head, you always think of them probably more closely together than you should, even though there's inevitably some sort of distinction between them. Sorry, I'm just thinking in my own personal life, I, I probably would do well not to make assumptions about someone based on how much they remind me of someone else. Yeah, that's probably. <laughs> I mean, and honestly, like uh, I find that if I, like someone I meet in the neighborhood, if I think to myself, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so, when I try to think back to the person that I just met, I can't see their face anymore. I only think of the old friend that I've had. Or when you're trying to think about names for your children before your babies are born and you can't tell anyone the names you're thinking because inevitably someone's going to say, oh, I knew a Francis in high school. Nobody liked that kid. And then you have to take Francis off the list. <laughs> exactly. Can I just go back for a second to the point Joe made about the velocity of the pitch affecting or not affecting the likelihood of the batter hitting the home run? I have always, always thought that the harder the ball comes in, the harder it goes out. I had no idea that physics and the statistical data show otherwise, that it's in large part the timing and how you hit it. I loved learning that. And I also love that Travis Darno didn't care. He was like, throw it as hard as you've got. I'll just hit it out of the park faster, which is such proof that even if it's irrational, like the psychology matters. Mm -hmm. It's hints of David and Goliath, right? The myth is really powerful. Like it doesn't matter if I'm much smaller than you are. It doesn't matter if you're really an ace pitcher at the height of your game. I can do it. I'll use your power against you. Yeah, it's a better story. It's a better story. And I guess the truth is, if you if Travis really focused more on things like timing and force, maybe statistically he would hit more home runs. I don't know. Yeah. Well, based on my vast knowledge of physics and baseball, absolutely. He would hit more home <laughs> runs. I'm, right. I'm quite certain. Of it. Right, right. I love your David and Goliath connection. I hadn't thought about that. I'm kind of stuck on how many great players didn't have careers because of other people's cognitive biases and system one thinking. Yeah. So there's just such a huge upside to awareness. And also, as we said before, sometimes going with your gut is the right thing to do. So we asked Joe to tell us about the benefit of system one thinking in baseball. And here's what he said. You know, a scout who's been watching young ballplayers for 30 or 40 years can still have great success 
with that system one evaluation of a young player. You just have to be careful that it's not the only input into your scouting algorithm. You want to make sure that there are other checks and balances, but there certainly are lots of good scouts who just by watching a player, how he moves, how he reacts to certain situations, um, can uh, that can re- really tell you a lot about their future. One of the other subjective areas that always gets talked about is clubhouse chemistry and how much it matters if the guys like each other and what kind of spirit they are or whether it just matters if they're good ball players. And I, I distinctly remember the, the 2013 Red Sox. They won the World Series at the end of a year and that began with the Boston Marathon bombing and that has sort of become a real rallying cry, but it was also a team constructed of guys who weren't stars. They had sort of made a purposeful decision in that previous offseason to get guys who were sort of good character, good clubhouse guys who were also good players, but not necessarily great players. And when they won the World Series, I was standing on the field next to their general manager, Ben Charrington, who had constructed this team. And he even admitted himself. He said, I don't know the first way of quantifying how clubhouse chemistry matters, but clearly it does. And yeah, I mean, there is probably some example of results bias here that because they won, you want to assume that that was part of it. At the same time, I think most people would would agree that those kind of less tangible characteristics can matter, even if it's a lot harder to truly quantify how much. Yeah. And certainly we want to believe they matter. I'm listening to you describe this and feeling very, very strongly in my gut. Of course it mattered. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it had to have mattered. Of course, of course. Yeah. So you've alluded a couple of times to Moneyball, and I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit more about the interplay between Moneyball and thinking fast and slow when it comes to influencing baseball. Uh, Sure. I think Moneyball, um, you know, on its most folks understand that it was at its core just about those inefficiencies, finding hidden value somewhere in the market. And much of that is derived by not allowing yourself to be prone to bias. And I think what you sort of said about result bias, that, you know, just because a player has a great season doesn't necessarily mean they were a great player. It actually reminds me of a feature I wrote when I was working at Sports Illustrated. Uh, The same draft class as Jed Lowry, there's a young player named Andrew McCutcheon who is also still playing. And he eventually won an MVP with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's with the Phillies now. But he told me that when he was a high school senior, he batted 700 usually 700 is your rate of making outs, right? (laughs) But it was the fact that he was this supremely talented player in a sort of a small town high school league in Florida. And then as he started in the minor league system with the Pirates, he still did very well, but eventually he got to double A and just at the beginning of the season just couldn't hit. He just went through this horrible slump. The hitting coordinator at the time, told me that he had been hired about a year and a half before that big slump. And he said on his very first day in that job, he went through the top prospects on the team and kind of evaluated them. And for McCutcheon, he actually made a list, like a physical, tangible list of these are the things he's going to need to change before he reaches the major leagues. But he didn't want to like go approach the player while he was still hitting, you know, 350 in the minor leagues, because even McCutcheon himself said, if I was approached at that time, I would have just sort of laughed him off. Like, obviously I know what I'm doing. But once he was at a point, a crossroads where he was more receptive to feedback, the coach, Greg Ritchie, approached him and said, hey, here's some things you're going to need to change. And I think it's an example of like the Andrew McCutcheon of 
early minor leagues in high school, you, you can easily be swayed by the result bias of, hey, I'm, he's such a great player. He doesn't need to change anything about his mechanics. And then, you know, later on, you realize, well, there still might need to be a change that happens later on. Kahneman has a new book coming out called Noise, and I know you've had an opportunity to see it. Can you give us any big takeaways from the book, things that you think will be really interesting to people in the sports field? Yeah, I think it's going to be next on the reading list. Whereas thinking fast and slow is very much about personal cognitive bias. The concept of noise is more about organizational processes that interject noise or confusion in a process. Two of the primary examples that Kahneman and his co-authors provide early on are about how if you were to ask insurance adjusters to come up with a, a premium for a particular case and ask them independently to do that, you would say, like, all right, when we bring your five answers together, how much disagreement do you think there will be? Most people would say, oh, you know, these are all seasoned expert insurance underwriters. It'll be maybe a 10% change. But what they actually found it was, it was closer to 50%. Hmm. And the other example was about judges giving sentences for convicted um, felons who had very similar crimes and how much disagreement there might be about sentence length. And again, it was much greater of a, a difference than you would you would expect. The idea of noise is the organization as a whole, the way that everyone's being trained and coached or you know brought up on precedent and how they apply it, the collective of all those biases is noise. And I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching and, and, and uh, a lot of system two thinking going on as to how this could be applied to what teams do now. I think it is so fascinating that even in the insurance world, which we equate with actuarial tables, it's so grounded in statistics, there is such a variation in results. That is just fascinating. Because they're human beings. Right, you know? right. And now we can get into a whole other conversation about AI and certain jobs and mm -hmm. what happens when we replace them with AIs, but another episode. Yeah, I have to think more about it. It's fascinating. I also think the story that Joe told about the hitting coordinator and Andrew McCutcheon could be seen as a really great example of taking into account the noise, being patient given the existence of the noise to great effect. That hitting coordinator saw the issues early, notwithstanding result bias. He saw that there were weaknesses. He knew that a star high school player getting positive reinforcements from all sides would not be able to hear criticism through the noise. He held off and then he gave the critique when the player could hear it. Yeah, that's an example of where psychology can work with that system to thinking right. to get a better result. Right. This also reminds me of a Talmudic <laughs> principle. Of course it does. <laughs> yes, because it's important to have baseball, behavioral economics, and the Talmud in the same episode. Yes. But it's the principle of Tochacha, which is one of the few principles that I know, and I'm probably going to get it wrong. But Tochacha is about criticism and one of the main rules underlying criticism in the Talmud is that you have to give it when the person can hear it. Mm. It could be harmful to give it at a different time. Anyway, I can't wait to read Noise and see whether it makes an impact in baseball and in other worlds. Yeah, I'd want to read it based on the reviews alone, but talking to Joe made me even more eager. 
So Julie, I am so glad that you used system one thinking to decide to propose this episode. And I used system two thinking to decide to accept (laughs) (laughs) because by challenging my cognitive bias against sports, I learned a lot. Oh, yay. And now we can go to a game. Yes. <laughs> we have lots of snacks and I'll tell you lots of stories. Perfect. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Joe on Twitter at Lemire Joe. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Book Dreams is part of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and